I was very lucky. The serious barriers fell just ahead of me. Other women had pushed them down, women like Margaret Burbage and Vera Rubin. By the time I applied to Caltech, I wasn't the first woman. There were 14 women on the entire campus when I came. That was Virginia Trimble, an award-winning astronomer, talking about the 1960s when she was one of the rare women studying the stars at an American university. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. A professor of physics and astronomy at UC Irvine, Dr. Trimble is the author of over 900 papers. She specializes in the structure and evolution of stars, as well as the history of science. Her career has taken many colorful turns. In 1962, as an undergrad at UCLA, she was featured in a Life magazine article That led to her being selected as Miss Twilight Zone. For that job, she toured the United States to promote the TV series. Now she is the co-editor of a new book called The Sky is for Everyone. It's filled with the autobiographies of amazing women astronomers. Listen and learn why Virginia Trimble is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm speaking today with Virginia Trimble, the great astronomer. Welcome, Virginia. We're so looking forward to this conversation today. Well, thank you so much for initiating it. Well, you're a groundbreaker by any definition. You've had a career that spans more than 50 years as an award-winning astronomer. Physics Today described you as a renegade scientist. Does that make sense? Is that an apt description for you, or how would you describe yourself? Well, I took the liberty of looking up renegade in the dictionary, and I decided I'm not a renegade anything. I'm still all the things that I've been for a very long time. I'm a woman. I'm a Jew. I'm an astronomer. I'm a native Californian, very fond of my native state, and a native-born American, rather proud of my country. I'm not a renegade anything. (laughs) Well, in 1962, when you were an undergrad studying astrophysics at UCLA, Life magazine ran an article and photos about you. They seemed incredulous that you had a brain because the title of the article was Behind a Lovely Face, 180 IQ. I don't think a magazine could do that today, but what did you think about it back then? Well, my mother was very pleased and I was very pleased. The photographer was the wonderful Bill Ray, who died not very long ago. The reporter who probably didn't get to use her own words, was a woman whose name I confess I have forgotten. But they followed me around for a couple of days. It was a wonderful experience, and it led in turn to my being picked to be Miss Twilight Zone the next year, and that also was a wonderful experience. Very interesting. So let's go back. What was school like for you, both as an undergrad and a PhD candidate? I know at that time there were many programs, I'm sure, and even observatories that wouldn't accept women. So can you tell us about what it was like? I was very lucky. The serious barriers fell just ahead of me. Other women had pushed them down, women like Margaret Burbage and Vera Rubin. By the time I applied to Caltech, I wasn't the first woman. There were 14 women on the entire campus when I came. When I applied for a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, they'd had other women. When I applied for observing time at Palomar for my thesis, 
I was not the first woman to be granted observing time in my own right. That had been Vera Rubin. So the berries just fell ahead of me. Ditto for a NATO postdoc when I completed my PhD. But there were still so few women, even even though some of the barriers had fallen, for sure. That is true statistically. Um, not, maybe not very many, many women wanted to be physicists or astronomers. That still, to a certain extent, is true. Well, those 14 and women I, you mentioned on campus, were they astronomy majors? Were they all science no, no, majors? No, no, no. These were the graduate students. There were no undergraduate women at Caltech until 1972, I think. These were graduate students or postdocs. And one very distinguished physicist mathematician, Olga Towsky-Todd, who at the time did not have a proper faculty position, but she was one of the really great mathematicians of her generation. It was her husband who had the faculty position. <laughs> but I did get to meet Olga Towsky-Todd just very briefly. Well, what was your time at Palomar Observatory like? I mean, that's an extraordinary place. <laughs> it rained a lot. I didn't have <laughs> I did not have particularly good luck as an observer. Partly, maybe entirely, because the object I was studying, the remnant of the 1054 supernova, the Crab Nebula, is on the meridian at midnight on the 10th of December. So it's something you observe late October to early February. And I had several observing runs. One was rained out completely. One was partly rained out. I got some data. A little bit of it got used in my thesis, but not very much. It just it wasn't a successful time, place to be trying to observe the Crab Nebula. I had several wonderful experiences there. I, I was the observer on the 48-inch Schmidt telescope when Chip Arp was the 200-inch observer, and he was rained out too, of course, so we spent an evening over the fireplace in the monastery just talking about things, astronomy mostly, but life in general. He was a, a, a prize-winning fencer. Interesting. And I also had, in those days, I'm crippled now, but in those days, I was an enthusiastic swimmer and dancer and various other athletic activities. Well, it sounds so like it my, was a rewarding conversation at any rate. Yeah, I tried to advise her. But that, can you imagine anything as stupid as a graduate student, a woman graduate student, trying to advise a senior astronomer? <laughs> he did not take my advice, and I think he would have been better off he had, if he had. <laughs> but he persisted in the conversation with you, so that says something. Well, there wasn't much else to do, you know. Eventually, my thesis advisor drove up in the middle of the rain in the middle of the night to bring me home. He didn't like the idea of my spending the night with Chip Arp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, I know that you've co-edited a wonderful new book called The Sky is for Everyone. And in it, there are 37 women astronomers who write their autobiographies. Can you tell us about the book? Did you feel it was necessary? Or what did you want to achieve by working on it? It wasn't my idea. The idea came from co-editor David Weintraub and Princeton University Press. And they decided that under the circumstances, they should have a female co-editor. I ended up first alphabetically, if nothing else. Truthfully, David did most of the heavy lifting. But I did add to the list. He had maybe half a, a, maybe a dozen women who'd agreed to contribute. I added a fair number of women from other countries, from a few other ethnicities. We were moderately successful. Um, I thought it would be fun to do. And of course, as I'm sure you know, women are conditioned to say yes when they're asked to do something. So I was asked to do this, I said yes. And it was very interesting to do. We stole the idea for the book title from one of the women who wrote a chapter near the end, one of the South African women. It's a wonderful title. Yes, it is. We thought of some other things, but that, that was the winner. Well, it must have been quite an effort to contact all of those women 
in various countries and then translate their work? No translation required. They, a successful scientist these days is simply of necessity fluent in English, at least fluent in technical English. Sometimes the everyday vocabulary is less successful. You should have heard me a few years ago trying to explain what a concubine was to someone who, whose first language was not English. Well, translation may not have been necessary, but did the technical vocabulary have to be edited some? Not very much. We explained to the women, I'm one of the authors, of course, because I wrote a trial chapter just to see how difficult it was. It took an afternoon, <laughs> but I write a lot on a typewriter, I will confess. Anyway, um, we told the women who'd agreed to help out that the audience was people who are interested in the world but are not going to be or not are professional scientists. We would hope to reach adolescents who might be thinking about what to do with their lives to persuade them that science is a neat thing for a gal to do. And they responded very, very well. We asked a few people to add definitions or translations. We compiled, or perhaps David compiled, a long list of the algorithms and the uh, acronyms that were used so that people would know what ALS or whatever stood for. Well, were any of these women your mentors or personal heroes? Or You've got the wrong generation. I'm the third oldest person in the book. We actually lost one author between the book appearing and now Judith Pfeiffer, who was a pioneer of infrared instrumentation, died fairly recently. We, were, we kept our fingers crossed for the health of all, our co all of our contributors, of course. No, I mean... The very first astronomy professor I ever had was a woman. Her name was Wooster Makemson, Maud Wooster Makemson. She taught at UCLA when I was an undergraduate there. She taught at one of the women's colleges a long time ago, and so Vera Rubin, who now has a telescope named for her, had her first astronomy class from Maud Wooster Makemson as well, though we didn't actually discover that until after Maud died. But my very first astronomy professor was a woman. So it never occurred to me that it was odd. <laughs> it's whatever you get used to, I guess. That is profoundly true. My father was a chemist, so I was used to scientists. But I would imagine if um, this crowd was much younger than you, that many of them had you as their personal heroine. Heroine, I very much doubt. I'm not that type. But several of them do in their chapters mention that at least they'd heard of me when I, when I asked them to help out, <laughs> which is very nice of them. I think you're just modest. Modesty, modesty. That's not one of my major vices. Well, you've also been a professor. You taught since 1971. That's quite a long time. Yes, half of it was spent at the University of Maryland. My husband was a very distinguished physicist, dead now for 22 years, um, who was a tenured professor at the University of Maryland when we got married. And our department chairs worked out January to June, we would both be at UCI. July to December, we would both be at Maryland each year. This worked very well, actually. It was a good solution to the two-career problem, which nobody else has ever adopted. <laughs> but I, I still, listen, I still recommend that. Um, if you have a spouse you're very fond of, and you have a job you're very fond of, and your spouse has a job she or he or they is are very fond of, then work it out with your department chairs to share out so you both keep your jobs and your spouses and so forth. Actually, it sounds like a very modern arrangement. More power to you. Well, it wasn't modern. It happened in 1972. <laughs> no, it was happening. That's why I, I mentioned it. It seems like something that, you know, one would strive to have work today. It's good that you made it work. You have to ask. 
And statistically, women don't ask. It shows up in promotion records and all kinds of things. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Give us a sense of how the field of astronomy and the students have changed. I mean, you've had an extraordinary lifespan in, in the field. Would you call it welcoming for women? I don't know the answer to that because I haven't applied for a job for a long time. Statistically, there are undoubtedly more women and they have more positions of, of power and authority. The uh, press release yesterday or today about the advice that NASA has sent to hit the asteroid to change its orbit, there were I think six or seven people quoted, and five or six of them were women with some position of authority, either in NASA or a related institution. So unquestionably more women, more women with power. Yeah. And so many women astronauts these days, which wasn't the case not that long ago. Well, Sally Ride was actually a good friend because she left NASA and came to UC San Diego, where she headed up an institute, and I was on their committee. So Sally Ride, who died very young, I'm sorry, was a good friend. The first American woman in space. Yes, yes. If you don't count the the squirrel monkey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we at Seneca Women often talk about the need to have a, you know, women's perspective in all fields. Do you feel it's important in astronomy? And if you do, why? I'm not totally persuaded that there is a woman's perspective. In reading the 36 chapters besides the one I wrote, I was... I suppose distressed to find not very many of them had really had fun all the time in the way I did. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed being a reasonably attractive woman in a field with lots of nice guys. And do I have a different perspective? Let me quote a colleague whose name I perhaps I shouldn't mention, who claimed that when I joined a conversation, I always lowered the tone. Well, we've talked about a, a number of experiences. I wonder if there are there's something, uh, some one experience or two that just stand out in your life that you'd like to talk about or mention. Well, I was very pleased when I got the letter of acceptance at Caltech. That actually begins my chapter. Most of the women who wrote chapters started with being born. I'm born in the middle of my chapter. <laughs> well, that's a proper obituary, right? You say first why the person is important. And then you have them be born later. The New York Times always does that. Anyways, um, the letter accepting me at Caltech was a great pleasure. Getting my first fellowship was a great pleasure. Marrying Joe Weber was enormous fun. He asked me when we'd known each other just a few days, and we married when we'd known each other 11 days in the county courthouse. Oh, my <laughs> in, gosh. In, the, in Montgomery County, Maryland. Then three months later, we married again in the local synagogue. But marrying Joe was great fun. And I'm glad he asked me. I'm glad I had sense enough to say yes. Well, those are wonderful highlights. And I can imagine stay with you and will always stay with you. And, you know, as an astronomer, you've had such a unique perspective on the world. Most of us don't have that perspective, obviously. And I wonder, given what's happening today, whether in politics, war, climate change, whatever, these are times that can get somebody down. How do you stay optimistic? You sound like a very upbeat human being, and I wonder what gives you hope. (laughs) I don't read the newspapers very often. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, that that actually actually that isn't true. I read the L.A. Times at breakfast and the New York Times over supper. Um, I guess I'm hard to discourage. It's true physically that I have a very high pain threshold. I think it's also true psychologically that I have a very high pain threshold. I don't discourage easily. I think the world is going to the dogs and I should take barking lessons. Uh, but people have been saying the world is going to the dogs at least since the time of Plato or thereabouts. Um, Fred Hoyle used to say that, yes, science may not save science from crumbling. Our technological civilization may well die. And he thought it would happen in his lifetime, which is now some years ago. But the human race is, is physically very tough. And the human race will surely survive, even if we bloat ourselves to smithereens or try to drown in our own garbage. The human race will survive. It will include none of my descendants. I made my most important contribution to a small carbon footprint by not having children. A lot to reflect on what you just said, Virginia. And we thank you so much for joining us today in this podcast and for the scintillating conversation. Virginia Trimble, thank you so much. Well, thank you. And farewell to everybody I'm going to be saying farewell to. How fascinating to look at our universe through the eyes of Virginia Trimble. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, it's important to recognize that change does happen. Today, there are more and more women in the sciences. As Dr. Trimble points out, media coverage of NASA's recent asteroid mission quoted numerous women tied to the program, some of them in positions of great authority. Second, Dr. Trimble shows us the importance of role models for girls. Her new book, The Sky is for Everyone, showcases the autobiographies of 37 women astronomers. It's meant, she says, to reach out a lessons and persuade them that science is a neat thing for a girl to do. Finally, as a scientist, Virginia Trimble gives us hope for the future. As she says, things may look difficult right now, but people have been predicting the end of the world since Plato's time. The human race, she reminds us, is physically very tough. Tune in next time to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day.